Hey everybody, it's Dan. Welcome or welcome back to the Bridge Church Podcast. Please, at the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and head over to bridgechurchutah.com and have access to all of the church information and it's the easiest way to share content with a friend and keep up with everything going on around here at Bridge Church. Most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Great to see so many smiling faces in here. Uh, Welcome on the stream or on the podcast, if I forget to mention that for the 15th time. (laughs) So, welcome everyone. Welcome to the mid, or I guess this is uh, foundations. Now, before we jump in, I do have uh, a couple of quick things to say. Uh, number one is our intercessory prayer. We have that uh, from five to six in here on Wednesdays and on Saturdays. If you guys are looking to really level up your prayer life or really just lean in a little bit more with the church or with God, come to that. It's really amazing. Lou leads that, does a very good job, all right? I feel like I'm talking really loud, but I'm gonna, gonna try to take it down a few decibels here. But anyway, I think that's all the big announcements that we have for this week. Just uh, growth track on Sunday. We're on part three. Uh, I think that's supposed to be with Joel and Mom, but I'm not sure either of them is going to be back by Sunday. So uh, we'll <laughs> we'll let you guys know about that one. <laughs> but anyway, so welcome to uh, the mid, everyone. And I know what you're all thinking. Hey, wait a minute. This is it fourth week. Why is Chase up here? Well, <laughs> my wife's telling me to get out of here. I'm sorry, guys. I got to go. <laughs> no. So as it turns out, like I had just said, all of our uh, lovely ladies, including Pastor Mom and Patty, are at the Her Voice Conference in some other place that I don't know where it is. So they are gone. And <laughs> funny story, in our uh, staff meeting we had a couple weeks back, uh, Mom was like, all right, so me and Patty are going to be gone, so somebody has to take over uh, foundations for the week. And Joel's going to be out of town, and Dom's going to be with the kids. So uh, it looks like it's just between uh, Chase and uh, Dan, Dad. And so me and him looked at each other, and, <laughs> and he like threw up his hand. He was like, rock, paper, scissors for it right now. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And we rock, paper, scissors, and I won. <laughs> and then I was like, ha, that means you're doing it. He was like, oh, and then my brother, my lovely brother, if he's listening to this, I love you, Joel, says, no, nah, man, you got to let it be two out of three, man, come on. And then guess what happened? I lost the next two. <laughs> so my bad, but that's okay. I'm, I love being up here. I love talking to you guys. I love all this stuff, but I do have some bad news, <clears throat> and that is we are not continuing Christianity on trial this week. It's out of cycle, and plus, you know, I was, like, seeking God about, like, ah, should I bring the next topic in for that? You know, should I talk about something? And I really felt him impress on me, no, keep it foundations, you know? That's what this week is for, focus on something foundational. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, that'll be, that'll be easy, was my <laughs> initial thought. And then I was like, okay, so what should I talk about? And then I found the topic for tonight in the most strange of places. I found it on TikTok. Now, I know a lot of people here that I'm on TikTok and are immediately like, oh, God. I think I heard somebody in here even say gross. So, <laughs> so just hear me out. Hear me out. So I follow a lot of Christian stuff on TikTok because, you know, I like to have Jesus in all areas of my life. And I opened it up one day. I think I had just got home. Me and my wife had just had dinner. I was just settling down for the night. And <laughs> I opened it up to a video that says, did you know there are 14 secret books of the Bible that the church has hidden from you that they don't want you to read? And I was like... <laughs> 
all right, starting off strong here. <laughs> now, my initial thought was like, okay, I think I know what he's talking about. And then as I like uh, listened to the rest of it, I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's what he's talking about. For those that are curious, that's the Apocrypha, which we're not talking about that tonight. I'm very sorry. <laughs> but that led me to the idea that I was like, oh, canonization. I was like, okay, I think I've talked about that a little bit. Uh, back when I had my podcast, I had an episode dedicated to, to it. I think I mentioned it like once or twice in a message way back, but I haven't had a chance to really dive in deep. <laughs> we're, we're diving deep, but this isn't diving deep. <laughs> anyway, so I thought, okay, how much more foundational can you get than what's in your Bible? So I guess that's the topic for tonight, or if you want the title, it's what's in your Bible, question mark, canonization, all right? So that's what we're talking about tonight. What's in your Bible? Why is it there? All that other fun stuff. Now, I do have a lot of notes on this, so I don't think we're going to get this, like, particular, I don't think we're going to get through all of the material tonight, but all the same, at least we'll have started it, and you guys could go research it in your own time, have a great old time, all right? That good? Everybody, everybody on board? Everybody good? All right. I hope you're on board, because we're, we're moving on ahead. So, to really, like, get us in the mindset of what we're talking about today, to really, like, engage and, like, lock in, there's a scripture I want to look at, and it's in Luke, chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Just to give everyone, like, early notice, we're going to be looking at a lot of chapter 1s tonight. So if you, if you guys need to, just hold on to all those chapter 1s, all right? And it goes like this. Actually, we'll be coming back to this one a little bit later. But it goes like this. Dedication to Theophilus. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. I think that's, I think that's pretty funny that Luke's like, oh yeah, I have perfect understanding. <laughs> uh, and understanding of all things from the very first. To write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So why? Why do we need to look at canonization? Why does it matter what's in the Bible? There it is right there in verse 4. That you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Basically, it's so that you can have confidence in what's in that Bible so you can live your life on its principles. Amen? Because if you don't have confidence in your Bible, funny, we just talked about this at Growth Track the other day, you got to believe that the Bible has something to teach you in order to really get the most out of it. Amen? And if you're constantly thinking of, oh, are there 14 secret parts of the Bible that I don't know about? Or, oh, did they hide things from me? Or, oh, you know, was the government involved with its construction? Or, you know, different things like that. So that is why. That is why we're here tonight, is to help everyone here and everyone under the sound of my voice have absolute confidence in the Bible, all right? So to go ahead and move on to that, I first got to give you guys the tidbit that canon comes from the Greek word kanon, which means rule or measuring stick, all right? So keep that in your mind, that when they called it the canon or canonicity or anything like that, it comes from the term for a standard, basically, that things were taken, held to that standard, and if they matched up, they then went into canon, okay? What, what standard did they use? We'll talk about that a little bit later. But for right now, I first want to go over some quick scriptures about, like, what the Bible is good for, since I feel like <laughs> that's pretty important to establish. First one I want to look at is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and it says, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Okay? So, 
Full disclosure, in this house, we believe that the Bible is the fully inspired word of God. We believe that every word in there is something that God wanted you to know. Amen? So we may talk about like, oh, they meant this or oh, they meant that. But rest assured that the eternal God that is outside of time wrote that specifically so you could know him. Right? I had a professor back at Bible college say that the Bible is purely and simply God explaining himself to people who just have no frame of reference of what he is. So imagine having to explain something to someone that has never, like, seen the thing before. Like, imagine having to explain an air conditioner to somebody in the, like, fifth century. That's about what you're doing. <laughs> but anyway, and then another scripture I want to look at is Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So the Bible is here to instruct you, and it's here to give you hope. Because I think a lot of people could be very discouraged when they like look at all the chaos in the world or all the stuff that's going on. They could be like, oh man, there's just, there's no hope. Everything is destroyed. There's just like, we have a pandemic. The government doesn't know what's going on. We just, we're lost, you know? And it's like, well, we're not totally lost. <laughs> all right. So with all that being said now, we're going to jump into a very long history lesson. All right. Because I feel it's important to tell the story of canonicity. Okay. So I hope everybody's got the, has, has their coffee, has an energy drink or something, because this is going to be a good chunk of the message. It's just me talking about how the Keda got made, all right? So I hope everybody's ready, because let's go ahead and jump on in. So to tell the story of canonization, we first got to start with the Old Testament, all right? So needless to say, the idea of canonization or of collecting works specifically for review and for study is a Jewish concept. It's something that they started, right? And really, it starts with those first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all right? Now, church tradition holds that God dictated them to Moses. He wrote them down. All that other stuff, that's possible. We have some other ideas for what that might have happened, but that's not important right now. If you want to hear about all that, I recommend you research in your own time. But for right now, all we need to know is that those five books function as, like, the government of Israel for a long time. Those are the, like, instructions through which the kingdom of Israel was to be run. All right? Like, basically, those were the constitution of Israel, if you want to be, like, put it in modern terms, if that makes sense. All right? That everything they did, everything they said, everything they believed was explained in those five. All right? And then after that, Israel started counting its history, like Joshua, Judges, both the Kings, both the Chronicles, all that other stuff. Now, Israel had been writing down its history for a very long time, but it wasn't until, you know, they didn't, <laughs> they didn't have their land anymore that they started getting nostalgic and felt the need to collect all of it, all right? So really the first, like, example of a lot of the Old Testament books being gathered together is with Ezra in Babylon when all of the books were gathered together, and he had said, okay, Jewish boys need to know where we're coming from so they know what we're going to. All right? And then as, like, Jews started to go back to the Holy Land with Nehemiah and all those other great guys, they started recording their history from that point because they had a lot of prophets going around. A lot of crazy guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, a lot of these guys. Now, a lot of these prophets wrote things down and collected them. And then as prophets would come, they would collect for previous and then just add on, add on, add on. And then after Rome took over and the Pharisees and all them started happening, they collected everything into the Old Testament pretty much as it is nowadays. Now, there are some pieces missing from the Old Testament that Jews hold on to that we don't. And these are what are called duro-canonical, which basically means that the Jews see them as super important, but Christians don't. All right? Everybody still on board? Everybody still following? 
Okay. So now we're jumping in to the New Testament. All right. Now this one's a little bit easier because how many of you know that the Gospels were actually some of the last of the New Testament to be written? Quite a lot of people. Okay, good. The Gospels were written very, very late. Actually, the Gospel of John was probably the last New Testament book written. I know it doesn't come at the very end, but it's very important because if you ever study John, you can see it as a capstone of the church age because John was the last of the disciples to die and his gospel wasn't circulated until well after his death. All right? Everybody following? Because the very first New Testament book that we ever see in circulation is an epistle of Paul. Does anybody have any idea which one it is? Any guesses? No, not Romans. Very good guess, though. It starts with a T if that helps. Nope, not Titus. It's 1 Thessalonians, actually. That is the oldest piece of written New Testament material that we currently have access to. There's a manuscript of it dating back to, I think, 257 that we have. Now, 1 Thessalonians was the first letter that Paul wrote and had the longest time in circulation. Now, it's important because Paul also had all his other letters, but the epistles were the first bit of New Testament content to really be exist. All right? All right, everybody still following? Everybody okay? And then after, like, Paul and the epistles it's, uh, and all the disciples that really had their epistles out and everything like that, uh, like, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were first, and then Revelation came a little bit after. Because I think that Peter and Paul had both died by the time Revelation was written. All right? All right? I got to check in. You got to make sure everybody's still good. And then the Gospels actually came significantly later, with Mark being the first one written and the first one circulated. Now, I think our pastor has talked about this from the platform before, but Mark is penned by Mark. But it's the eyewitness of someone else. And the reason that Mark kind of jumps around a lot is kind of patchy is because the material used to compose Mark was very focused. Because, because we believe that the Gospel of Mark was composed from sermon notes that Peter wrote and then gave to Mark to hold on to. So the Gospel of Mark is penned by Mark, but it's the eyewitness account of Peter. All right? And then after Mark, Mark was the Gospel for a little while there. It was like 10, 15 years that that one was, it was just that one. And then Matthew started to be compiled. Now Matthew's focus was extraordinarily different from Mark. Because again, Mark, he just wanted like a list of all the stuff Jesus said, threw it together, got it out the door. All right? Matthew's purpose was very different. Because Matthew's purpose was to organize everything by Jesus' teaching. Because you'll notice that uh, Matthew has long stretches of time where Jesus just teaches on and on and on, right? Now, Luke came after that, and Luke, like he just kind of explained there, his purpose was to give the fullest account possible, all right? Now, again, you can see how the focus is shifting over time here and how 10, 15 years are passing between Gospels. Because Mark is sort of in the middle. A lot of the disciples are still around. A lot of stuff is happening. They just wanted to get quick. It reflects the mentality of the disciples at the time, which is that we just got to get this word out to as many people as possible. Whereas Matthew was like, okay, we've gotten the word to a lot of people, but there's a lot of confusion. So let's, let's correct that a little bit. And then Luke is like, okay, now people are asking us questions we don't have the answers to. Let's have a longer narrative. And then comes John. Now, I will, I'll let you guys know, John started authoring it when he was like 80 years old. He's a, he's a pretty old dude. He's been around a while. And the Gospel of John was composed by committee, basically. John had a lot of disciples that were helping him to write it, all right? And then the Gospel of John finished writing after John had died. 
And then after that, it was started to be circulated after his death. But you study the Gospel of John. I could talk about the Gospel of John all day. I got to try not to get caught up in this too much. But the Gospel of John is super nice because, again, it's the capstone of the church age. John has 40 years on all the other disciples at this point. And that's 40 years of church history of seeing how these churches have changed and how they've been altered over this time. All right? Like, we can see that John is starting to come up against some major obstacles the church would have after the disciples are gone. All right? And speaking of that... After John had died, we go into a new generation of the church, basically. Now, the way church history is typically broken down is you have Jesus and you have the apostolic era. Now, this is Peter, Paul, all these guys is when they're still around. And then after they're gone and their immediate disciples are gone comes what's called the patristic era. Now, that comes from uh, patros, that comes from the Greek word for father. That com that's called that because these guys are identified as the church fathers at this particular point. Because they're the ones who have to take what has been written and turn it into an actual functioning organism. These are the guys who like establish the bishops. These are the guys who turn elders and deacons into actual official church offices. They're the ones who are like, okay, these churches have more influence than these ones, you know, so on and so forth. And then after all the patristic guys are gone comes the universal Catholic church. Now, this is not the Roman Catholic church. This is different because the Universal Catholic Church, the East and West are still on the same page. Now, these two eventually will split for a couple of theological reasons, which are mostly contributed to the fact that the West, because of the presence of Rome, speaks Latin. All the Greek manuscripts have been translated into Latin. Whereas in the East, Greek was still spoken, Greek was still the official language of like the church, basically. Okay? Now, the Greek church already thought that the West was an error by translating into Latin at all. Because the first manuscripts available of the epistles, of the gospels, of everything else were in Greek. And they believed that by translating them at all, you're already losing the holiness and the message of them. And that is a belief they still hold to this day. Because when the East and West split, the East became what is called the Greek Orthodox Church, which is still around. And then the West became the Roman Catholic Church. They split over a whole other theological issue I'm not going to get into right now. But basically, when these two churches were still together, some things started to happen. Now, in church history, we call these controversies. But if you want to use our current within Christianity word for it, these are heresies. And I want to go over these because canonization came out as a consequence of these. Like the church learned lessons during these controversies that led to the creation of the canon. So unfortunately, we can't talk about the canon without talking about these, all right? Everybody good with that? Everybody still on board? All right. So the first one I want to talk about, and this one is really significant because this one existed around the time that even Jesus was alive. These people saw what Jesus was doing and are like, hey, that kind of makes sense with what I already believe. And these guys are the Gnostics. This is the heresy of Gnosticism, which you've probably heard that word once or twice, but aren't super familiar with it. That's okay. I'm going to give you a very small description, and then we're going to move on. <laughs> but basically what Gnostics believe is that everyone has a shred of divinity already within them, that we all are gods of form, and that Jesus was just a guy who realized his godhood through knowledge, through the Gnosis, that's the Greek word for knowledge, and through that, unlocked his true potential and then was able to live, like, a life truly befitting someone of divinity. All right? 
Everybody still following? Everybody still here? So, basically, the Gnostics saw everything that Jesus was doing and are like, hey, that's a guy who has the Gnosis. That's a guy who has self-realized and is not bound by the material. Because they believed that the supernatural was holy and amazing and awesome, and everything material was absolutely evil and needed to be purged. So if you were physical in any way, shape, or form, you needed to cast that off and become the Gnosis. Okay? Like, their view of the crucifixion is that Jesus left his earthly body behind and achieved true Gnosis, basically. Okay? All right? Everybody, everybody still around? So these guys like a lot of what John was saying. You could see that John, in Revelation and in his gospel, is combating these ideas. Like, the whole of John chapter 1 is dedicated to this idea of the word, was, the word was with God and the word was God. It's not that the word was a God. The word was God. It's not that we are all gods. It is that there is a God. Amen? So eventually, Gnosticism was thrown down, but the church saw that people are looking at their scriptures and are twisting them to mean things that they weren't initially meant to. So what does that mean? That means there has to be a set standard of interpretation. There has to be certain books that can be accepted and certain ones that cannot. All right? So there's a need for a list or a definitive limit to it. All right? Next, this one's kind of fun. Next came the controversy of Montanism. Now, this one sounds kind of weird. It was uh, started by a guy, na a guy named Montanus. And this guy believed that uh, you have to leave room for the spontaneity of the Holy Spirit. And you got to really seek God with everything you got. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And that's true. It is very similar to our non-denominational standard we have here at this church. But... And this is a very big but. Montanists believed that the same word that came to Jesus, that came to Peter, that came to Paul, could come to him. To put this in religious terms for you guys, he believed there was no canon and that every word spoken by like anyone in the church today carries the exact same weight as the apostles. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you guys that, like, these guys are holier than thou or that they are so great we can never match them or they have an understanding we can never achieve. I'm not here to say that. However, I think that if you've seen the face of Jesus, the literal incarnate face of Christ, I think you understand just a little bit more than I do. Again, I think the Holy Spirit can bring that, but I think that it's very different when it comes to the idea of helping people or functioning within a church. Amen? So this brought up the idea of, okay, this list has to be very specific now. There has to be certain things that lead us and guide us through our church life. Amen? Like we have to have certain books that say what our behavior should be and what our beliefs should be. Amen? And then we come to the last one. This one's super special because I'm sure at least everyone in here has heard this one at least once. And this is the controversy of Marcionism. Nobody's heard of that? All right. So basically, Marcion was the son of a bishop. Now, this is bishop in the official sense because we've made it to the universal church by this point. But basically, Marcion let... Okay, so you guys know how the Catholic Church believes that the Pope carries special responsibility or a special mantle that's been handed down to him from Peter, right? So think of that same thing, but for Paul. And that's basically what Marcion is. Because Paul's church, or one of the churches associated with Paul, got a bishop after, well, had Timothy, that had a bishop, that had a bishop, and that bishop had Marcion. 
So Marcion directed his like spiritual lineage directly to Paul, right? So this is unique and specific because Marcion believed that Paul was the only guy who knew what he was talking about. He believed that all the disciples were sinners that didn't understand Christ and needed to be cast off completely. So that meant no John, no James, no Peter. The only person that could be trusted, because Marcion actually collected the very first Christian canon that we have. And he had said that the God of the Old Testament is the evil God, the one who has trapped us within this realm that we cannot escape from. But Jesus, he is a good God. There are two gods, not one, there are two. Jesus is the good God who has come to throw off our chains and lead us into absolute perfection. Therefore, the Old Testament, gone. Nothing the Jews have is anything we want, is what Marcion believed. And none of these Jewish disciples of Jesus had any idea about who he was. So let's throw out everything they have. The only person who understood Jesus was the one who saw him fully incarnate, Paul. So only, the, only a little bit of Luke and the epistles of Paul were considered canon to Marcion. Now, various church fathers and bishops of this time had said, now hang on a second. Peter, who has a story of redemption, didn't know what he was talking about. John, who wrote an entire gospel that understands Christ better than anyone, doesn't know what he's talking about. And the Jews, who have known God for their entire history and that we all take our lineage from, don't know what they're talking about. No, Marcion, we think you don't know what you're talking about. And that was what happened, is that they believed that the Jewish roots, that Jesus came to the kingdom of the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, as Scripture says, needed to be maintained. The Old Testament is a crucial factor of Christianity, and it cannot be thrown out. So, through all these things, we see that the church saw the need for certain books to be allowed and certain ones to be denied. Not so that these old men in these positions of authority could push down the common man and stop these people from understanding and believing everything they could have. It was nothing like that. It was so that the true message of what God was saying and what Jesus came for could be fully and completely understood. Now, it took them some time to get that started. It took them a couple hundred years to actually sit down with all the people from across the Christian world at the time and say, okay, what book is important to you? What book is important to you? Which one do you need? And we'll go over the criteria that they were like, okay, let's hold this one up. Okay, let's hold this one up and go over that. We'll go over that in a couple minutes if we have time. But at the Council of Rome in 382, the, can the canon was officially done. The canon was completed, and it was dispersed to the churches throughout the Christian world, all right? Now, I want to read this specifically because I think it's pretty cool. But take in mind that this is the canon of the universal church, meaning this is the canon that the Greek Orthodox still have and that the Catholics have. After several hundred years, after a certain Martin Luther decided to nail 95 reasons why he wasn't happy on the wall, <laughs> biblical canon was reevaluated, and certain things were seen as apocryphal, meaning that their message didn't match up with the rest of the Bible, so they were pulled out. Some things were seen as pseudepigraphal, meaning that their authorship couldn't be verified, so they were pulled out. And certain things were seen as durocanonical, important to the Jews, so they were pulled out. And that left us with the Bible we have now, or at least the Bible you should have in front of you, I hope. <laughs> But I want to read this from Roman 382. Just listen to this. There's going to be a couple odds and ends that you don't recognize, but just, just follow me through on this, okay? Now, indeed, we must treat of the divine scriptures what the universal Catholic Church accepts and what she ought to shun. The order of the Old Testament begins here. 
Genesis, one book. Exodus, one book. Leviticus, one book. Numbers, one book. Deuteronomy, one book. Joshua Nave, Joshua, one book. Judges, one book. Ruth, one book. Kings, four books. Take in mind, they have an extra two. Chronicles, two books. Psalms, one book. Solomon, three books. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Canticle of Canticles. Likewise, Wisdom, one book. Uh, Ecclesiastes, one book. Likewise, the order of the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ginnuth, that is his Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Oswe, Amos, Micchaeus, Joel, Abias, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Sophanus, Agias, Zacharias, Malachi. Likewise, the order of histories. Job, one book. Tobias, one book. Esedras, Ezra, Nehemiah, one book. Esther, one book. Judith, one book. Maccabees, two books. Again, that's another piece of Jewish history that fills in the intertestamental period. But again, it's a history book talking about the Jewish fighting the Romans. Likewise, the order of the writings of the New and Eternal Testament, which only the Holy and Catholic Church supports, of the Gospels according to Matthew, one book, according to Mark, one book, according to Luke, one book, according to John, one book. To the epistles of Paul the Apostle in number 14, to the Romans, one, to the Corinthians, two, to the Ephesians, one, to the Thessalonians, two, to the Galatians, one, to the Philippians, one, to the Colossians, one, to Timothy 2, to Titus 1, to Philemon 1, everybody hold your breath, to the Hebrews 1. <laughs> Likewise, the Apocalypse of John, that's Revelation, one book. And the Acts of the Apostles, one book. Likewise, the canonical epistles in number 7 of Peter the Apostle, two epistles, of James the Apostle, one, of John the Apostle, one, of another John, the Presbyter, two epistles, of Jude the Zealot, the Apostle, one epistle. I don't know about you guys, but herein, all the books of the Bible laid out in mostly the order they are in my current Bible 1,700 years ago, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. But real quick, what is the criteria for canon? What were the books that made it and the books that didn't? What did these guys in Rome sit down and say, okay, these are the criteria for getting in and staying out? All right? First thing is authorship. Can we verify who wrote this epistle or this gospel or this book or whatever. Luckily for some of them, it was a bit easier than others. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Can anybody read the first word on there? Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. And you guys want to know something else that's really cool? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't written yet. There was... The gospel had never been said before in Christian history. This is the very first mention of the gospel. That's pretty cool, I think. But anyway, let's look again. James chapter 1, verse 1. Who wrote this one? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and... <laughs> Again, Peter, these guys are saying who wrote them. Now, it's important because 
all of these are being sent to churches or to groups. And the groups could verify, okay, this is how Paul writes. This is his address. This is his signature. We know it's him. We can verify that it is him even 200 years after he's dead. And the church was like, okay, Romans can be in. First Peter can be in. James can be in. All right? And the same is true of all the books of your Bible. All right? Next thing. This is the biggest one. This is the thing that separates the Apocrypha and the pseudepigrapha from the rest of the Bible. Is everybody ready? The message. What is the message of the Bible? What is, if you had to dumb this whole thing down to one sentence, what would it be? Well, let's look at a couple of scriptures. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What are all these guys saying? We are sinners in need of a Savior. That Savior has come, and he has died, and now lives. If a book comes around and is like, oh, hey, this is really, oh, hey, I think you should be nice to your wife and writes an entire book about that. It's like, yeah, that's great, but does that talk about how much Jesus loves you? Again, what is the purpose of this whole book? What is the whole thing that this entire thing has been written to achieve? It is to get people saved and then to disciple them in the instruction of that faith. Amen? All right. And then I am running out of time, so I'll rush through this last section. The last thing that they considered was geographic usage. Basically, how well circulated were some books, all right? Because what does that represent? What does that say? That represents community. That represents people reading it and saying, hey, this is legit. I see God in this, and I can teach this to other people. Because another thing you got to realize, guys, they couldn't just whip out their phone and take a picture of this stuff. They couldn't just, like, recite it from memory. These guys had to, like, write on these big old long scrolls. And you wanted to make a copy. You had to buy this expensive paper and ink and send a guy to where the scroll was to go get a copy and come back. That was a long time. But if something, if God could be seen through it, if Christians of this day, not the high and lofty bishops, not the high and powerful people, but if common Christian could read it and say, okay, I see this. I see God in this. I want to pay or tithe or give so that my church can have a copy of this, so that the Galatians can have a copy of the letter sent to the Ephesians. You could do that. And this is something I've noticed very recently that a lot of people have been saying is that a lot of people are very spooked about the Bible. Because I was doing some research and some Christians lately talk about the Council of Nicaea, which was a long time ago. It was dealing with another controversy that happened that I'm not going to talk about. But basically, Constantine, the emperor of the Roman Empire, presided over this, meaning he decided who could talk and who couldn't. And some people are like, that means politics decided what went in the Bible. Political decisions decided what went in the Bible. No. Because the Council of Nicaea didn't decide the canon. The Council of Rome did. And let me tell you guys something. There wasn't a Roman official in the room. It was bishops from across the empire. Christians decided what went under your Bible, not emperors. And I think that's encouraging. Amen? All right, let's everybody stand together. 
I was going to give you guys some verses, but they're all basically just Galatians 1, Ephesians 1, and Philippians 1 that all say to the church of Philippi, to the church of Galatia, to the church of Ephesians. So I think, I think everybody kind of understands that already. All right? So I'm just going to pray out, and then we'll be dismissed. All right? Hallelujah, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. And Lord, thank you for preserving your word and making sure that it made it through all the language barriers out of Hebrew, out of Greek, all the way down to the English Bible in front of us, Lord. We thank you for your presence and for ensuring that your Holy Spirit made the same Bible that these men wrote into our hearts, Lord. We thank you, Lord. I thank you for everybody who's here, God. I pray their safety. I pray they have a blessed week, Lord. And we pray for... Uh, our youth and our women again, God, that they be safe and that they receive a lot. And I pray that everyone here just finds you on a whole deeper level, Lord. And in Jesus' my name we pray. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Sandy, South Jordan, West Jordan, or Harriman area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, head over to bridgechurchutah.com or email info at bridgechurchutah.com or you can simply text 801-391-6969. We're looking forward to seeing you soon.